Hi, this is Nate Wuggiehout, producer of the WORT Local News. We know we're one of Madison's best podcasts, but let's make it official. Nominations for Madison Magazine's Best of Madison competition are open through the end of the month. Help nominate this show in the Best Podcast category. Just go to tinyurl.com slash votewart and cast your vote for the WORT Local News in the Podcast category. And you can nominate us every day through the end of the month. So vote early and vote often, maybe when you're listening to this show. Final voting will take place in June. Thanks in advance. This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers announced today that his upcoming executive budget will include several proposals to serve Wisconsin veterans. According to a press release, the initiative includes funds to support the workforce at the Department of Veterans Affairs, bolster veteran employment, and expand mental health services. The budget initiative comes on the heels of a $10 million investment in veterans funded by the American Rescue Plan. That investment follows the governor's 2022 Blue Ribbon Commission on Veteran Opportunity. The commission gathered input from experts on how best to help veterans. Evers is expected to release his proposed budget next week. After that, it will go on to the Republican-led legislature, which will have the opportunity to change some or all of it. Last week, all 11 Wisconsin Senate Democrats signed a letter urging Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew to remove his election commission's appointee, Robert Spindell. The Capitol Times reports that the letter came as a response to an email Spindell wrote where he boasted about lower turnout among voters of color in Milwaukee in the November elections. In the email sent on December 16th, Spindell said, quote, We are especially proud of how Milwaukee's growth vote went down from 74 to 63% of registered voters. Senate Democrats have previously called for Spindell to resign or be to remove from his post. The letter to Spindell's superior formalized the request. The Mayu has not responded to the letter, but Spindell has said that he will not resign. The Ashland County DA won't be filing criminal charges in a deadly crash involving former state senator Janet Bewley. The crash in July of last year killed Alyssa Ortman, 27, and her five-year-old daughter, reports WKOW. Bewley had no major injuries. District Attorney David Meany said in his report that none of the law enforcement agencies involved referred potential criminal charges. The forensic investigation concluded that Ortman's Honda Civic was traveling 100 miles per hour, a second and a half before the crash, with Bewley's Volkswagen on U.S. Highway 2. A toxicology report of a blood sample from Ort- Ortman showed, quote, a detectable amount, unquote, of marijuana-derived chemicals. Bewley had had an eye operation the day before the incident, but Meany said there isn't evidence that her sight was impaired. Pesticide levels being dangerous to aquatic life persist in many Great Lake tributaries year-round, a scientific study has found. Of the 16 rivers sampled in the study, 
all but one, the Bad River and Ashland County, had pesticide levels that exceeded federal EPA standards. The Manitowoc River had the highest pesticide levels in the state, followed by the Milwaukee and Fox Rivers, reports the Milwaukee Journal Clinton. The study published in the journal Environment, Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry was conducted in 2015 and 2016. Testing for pesticides that are often applied on farm fields, golf courses, and lawns. The Maumee River in Ohio had the highest pesticide concentrations in the study with 72 chemicals detected, 42 of them above federal safety standards. After months of high egg prices, Wisconsin egg producer John Brunquell, CEO of Egg Innovations, says markets are returning to normal. Egg supplies were hit hard by avian influenza, or bird flu, last spring and again in the fall, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Brunquell, who runs 15 Wisconsin egg farms, says prices should drop significantly over the next month or so. Despite the jump in prices, consumer demand has been steady, making it a profitable time for the egg industry, says Brunquell. Don Keen, poultry specialist for the UW-Madison, said Wisconsin has weathered bird flu better than some other parts of the country, but most signs point to a return of the virus this spring. UW-Madison's new Bucky Pale Pathway program will fully cover four years of financial needs of students from lower-income families in Wisconsin. The new program is an expansion of the Bucky's Tuition Promise program, which the university says has helped almost 5,000 students since it was announced in 2018. Channel 3000 reports that the university expects more than 800 students to qualify during the upcoming academic year. The new, the new pathway is pledging to help first-year students for all four years and to help fund transfer students for two years. The program is not limited to tuition, but also covers housing, meals, books, and more. Funding doesn't come from taxpayer money, but rather from private donors and other institutional resources. And after today's snowfall, the city of Madison has declared a snow emergency. That means that alternate side parking rules will be enforced throughout the entire city tonight and tomorrow to help the streets division clean the roads. Tonight, make sure you park on the even-numbered side of the street, and tomorrow night you should park on the odd-numbered side of the street. Violations of alternate side parking rules can result in a ticket and potentially having your car towed. Parking is also available in the cashiered sections of city-owned ramps, and you can park for free in the garages between 9 p.m. and 7 a.m. Crews began clearing the roads earlier this afternoon, and it's expected to take at least 12 hours. And now on to today's top stories. Madison Metropolitan School District Superintendent Dr. Carlton Jenkins announced yesterday his plans to step down from his role and retire at the end of July. The surprise announcement from MMSD's second shortest serving superintendent has many wondering what the future of the school district will look like. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley has more. A week after the Madison Metropolitan School District's State of the District Address, Superintendent Dr. Carlton Jenkins announced his plans to retire later this year, putting him on track to be one of the district's shortest serving superintendents. In his closing remarks during last week's State of the District Address, Jenkins had this to say. I want to just say thank you and um, again for coming out tonight and there are 
much work still to be done. But we're in it. And I want to say I'm very proud of the staff. I can't say that enough. Our students and the commitment you've shown in this community and the way you've welcomed me back in. I want to say thank you, everybody. Okay? Thank you. Reactions from members of the school board and staff at MMSD schools have been a mix of surprise and sadness at the announcement. Jenkins accepted the role of superintendent in August of 2020 after the previous candidate for the position, Matthew Gutierrez, backed down at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Since assuming the position of superintendent, Jenkins has faced challenges from a number of areas, chief among which has been the struggle to ensure access to virtual education during the early stages of the pandemic. Other challenges have arisen in repeated conflicts with Madison Teachers Inc., or MTI, over a range of issues from wage increases to controversial changes in the district's layoff and reassignment policies. A high turnover rate during the 2021 to 2022 school year also left many schools short-staffed, with educators reporting high levels of burnout. Some of Jenkins' key points while in office have been improving literacy among Madison students, as well as addressing the needs and concerns of students from underserved communities. The school district under Jenkins adopted a new literacy curriculum, which focused on early language development and multi-language programs this past April. Jenkins stated that he is looking forward to spending more time with his family, especially his grandson. Members of the Board of Education and MTI have expressed surprise and sadness at the announcement, according to the Wisconsin State Journal and the Capital Times. Nikki Vandermeulen, member of the Board of Education, offered the following statement. I wanted to state that, um, to thank Carlton Jenkins for his work at the district and the work he's done in the community. And I wish him the best of luck in his retirement. I understand needing to put family first and that makes perfect sense. And I wish him the best of luck. Michael Jones, current president of MTI, offered the following statement. Obviously we are thankful for Dr. Jenkins' service to the Madison community and to the schools, um, especially coming in during a really, really difficult time. Uh, came, you know, he came in pretty much uh, still uh, during COVID when there wasn't a vaccine, and um, so it's been it's been a tough few years. Um, but we appreciate his his uh, service and look forward to uh, having further discussions around you know, how we move forward together as a community and making sure that everyone's voice is, is being heard, especially the staff and those who are, you know, dedicated to working with the kids. Following the announcement, Jenkins is on track to become one of the shortest serving superintendents in the last century of the district's history, second only to Charles Meek, who served from 1920 to 1921, according to the MMSD website. Jenkins will leave his office on July 28th. So what does the future look like for MMSD? The Board of Education meets next Monday for a work group meeting. The next general board meeting is in a few weeks on February 27th. Agendas for both meetings have not yet been released as of the time of broadcast. The board will take the lead on the hiring process. If no suitable candidate can be found before the start of the 2023 to 2024 school year, an interim superintendent may be appointed until the position can be filled. MTI had pushed for a local candidate when Jenkins was hired back in 2020. 
No statement has yet been made from MTI whether this will be the case during the hiring process moving forward, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. With the 2023 spring primary election now less than two weeks away, we head to our final district in our coverage of the primary, District 20. Located on the west side near Elver Park, the district has been represented by Alter, Alder Matt Fair after he returned to the seat just last year. Alder Fair spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehout about his campaign earlier this week. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 20 on Madison's west side, containing Elver Park in the Green Tree neighborhood. Alder Matt Fair is the current alder of District 20 and will face off against three other candidates in the primary election later this month. Matt joins me now by phone. Matt, thank you so much for talking with me today. You bet. Glad to be here. So just to start here, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Sure. Uh, so I am, my name is Matt Fair. Um, I uh, am a teacher, uh, have been for many years, currently teaching in the Middleton School District at the high school, teach social studies. I have uh, a wife and three kids who all my kids are uh, on the west side in, in either Memorial or Toki Middle School. I've served on the council in the past and was appointed this June when the former alder had to resign and I'm running for election again. And why did you decide to run for Alder again here? So uh, there's a few reasons. Um, I, I do uh, like to serve. I've come from, come from a family of public servants, and so it's sort of in my blood. I enjoy the work for the most part. And uh, when I got back on the council in June, I it didn't take long to realize that I think at this moment in time, there's a need for people who have experience. Um, we've had a lot of turnover on the council in the last few years and people leaving midterm. And it's promised to be quite a bit of turnover coming up in this election, people who aren't running. So I think the, the the city and the council could use somebody who has that experience, not just just experience being there, but experience, you know, getting things done, working together with other people. There's going to be a lot of new alders, and I think I can provide some leadership, help some new alders learn the learn the job and help move the city forward together. So and then, of course, there there's some issues that I've worked on over the years that I'm really uh, passionate about, like violence prevention and housing, which we can talk about later, I'm assuming that I want to continue to make sure the city is moving forward on and, and help lead on. Now, just sticking with you for just a little while longer here, Matt, what do you do in your spare time? So, I mean, I, I, in my real job, like I said, I'm a teacher. And then in my spare time, uh, I'm spending a lot of time with my family, you know, either running them to different things that they're involved in. Um, I coach my son's basketball team. So uh, he's in sixth grade. So I love doing that. Personally, I love sports myself. So I spend a lot of time, maybe too much time, watching um, college sports and, and pro sports and going to games. And then I just, you know, I love being outside like like most people here in Madison. So especially when it warms up, I'm on my bike or running or up at our family cabin and just enjoying the, the outdoors. Now, let's move on to the city of Madison as a whole. What are the most pressing issues that you would like to address that are currently facing the entire city? Well, uh, you know, probably one that uh, most of your guests are going to talk about is housing. And that's been in the news a lot lately and been before the council. So we, we definitely have, you know, call it a housing crisis, emergency, whatever we want to call it. Um, it's very important that I believe and most of us believe that we do as much as we can in a thoughtful, organized, uh, strategic way to make sure that we are creating or creating the opportunity for others to create the most accessible and affordable housing we can a lot of that is um, incentivizing market rate housing, so we just can increase the supply, so hopefully costs can come down, come down over time, but also being very intentional 
about our affordable housing um, development, which I've served in the community development block grant committee for years, and that's been our, our main uh, mission is to, to provide more affordable housing for folks. For me, um, I've worked on violence prevention in the past, and I think, and I will continue to work on that. I think it's extremely important that we continue to think about crime and safety and violence in a holistic way, and that we allow our public health department to grow its violence prevention unit, which I had a hand in helping get through and create, so that we really look at intervention and prevention and sort of, you know, social determinants of violence, as opposed to just focusing on the suppression end of it. Police are definitely a a partner in our violence prevention efforts, no doubt. And we need to make sure that we are supporting our police department by, I think, personally, like putting funding in, in, in other areas that will help get at the root causes of violence. So, Really important that we're, we see that effort through, that we grow it, um, that we allow it to um, sort of build. So I'm really focused on that as well as housing. You know, the other couple issues that I have that come to mind, our city needs to continue to allow a creative, vibrant economy to grow, especially post-pandemic. Uh, that's going to be different. So we need to really be making sure we have good private-public partnerships so that our economy grows, not just downtown, but definitely downtown, but everywhere in the city. So it meets the needs and the, and the wants and the joys and the fun for everybody as um, as we move forward. And then, uh, you know, we're going to be facing some very difficult budgets going forward. And so it's really going to be important that we as a council make sure that we are continuing to provide excellent city services, which I know our residents expect, and balance that with all the priorities like housing, like violence prevention, economic development that we have. So not going to be easy. Uh, and again, I think my leadership and experience there will be able to help the council move forward in those in those areas. Now, Matt, back in 2018, the entire city saw pretty widespread flooding. And since then, the city has taken major steps to address stormwater management here in Madison. But some of those stormwater management projects have come under fire by some Madison residents. For example, the Sauk Creek Greenway restoration, which is right in District 9 next to your district there. How do you weigh the need to address flooding and stormwater management against uh, the wishes of your constituents? It's like it's like any issue. You know, you have to be listening to to people, and a lot of times, you know, we as policymakers or city staff sometimes don't um, take back the how things are gonna, you know, how big changes are gonna affect people uh, on the ground, for lack of a better term. So it's always a balancing act, whether we're talking about you know stormwater management or we're talking about major road projects or whatever. So. You know, you weigh, you listen, you weigh uh, the response from constituents. You have to sometimes be aware that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's only a few constituents who are really doing most of the talking. And if you can get a better cross-section of your constituents and realize, oh, maybe this isn't as bad as maybe it seems. But specifically to stormwater, and I, and I have, I guess, very, very personal experience with this. We need to do all we can to make sure that we're doing the best we can with our stormwater management. We are going to see more storms like we saw in 2018, just based on projections of climate change. And so we need to be resilient. We need to be ready. And, and part of it is like educating people and working with our constituents along the way, along the process, so they understand fully what the goals are of projects like, like these and have a, a say in them on the front end. And um, then usually I've, I've learned over time that people then usually feel good about the end result as long as they're part of the process during going through it. Now, looking at your specific district, Matt, District 20, what are a few issues facing specifically District 20? What have you heard from potential constituents? Yeah, and I've, I've been out knocking on doors, knocked on close to 1,500 doors so far. 
You know, I hear uh, concerns about traffic safety quite a bit, speed, reckless driving, that kind of stuff. So I think, we, you know, there's major things to be thinking about on Hammersley Road and in McKenna and other places to slow, slow people down or to calm traffic. So that's certainly an issue I hear. You know, I, I mentioned or alluded to it early, earlier, but people are concerned that, you know, I mean, to be frank, that taxes are going up. And especially seniors uh, are feeling like maybe, uh, you know, they, they could be squeezed out of, of their home because they're on fixed income. So to me, that means that we just have to be very conscious of the balance that we have as policymakers. You know, there are definitely priorities that we need to invest in, but we also just understand how that affects people in their homes. And so I hear, you know, I hear about traffic. I hear about making sure that, you know, city services continue to be uh, what they are. I think people come to expect really good plowed roads, really good parks, really good stormwater management. But we pay pretty high, you know, a high amount in taxes. So, uh, you know, they should expect those services. So those are the issues that I hear about. Um, safety is another one that I hear about, though not as much in the newly recon- reconfigured district as I did in, in the old District 20. But those would be the three issues, I think, traffic safety, services and taxes, and then public safety. While we're coming up against the clock here, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here? No, not really, except for that, you know, like I said earlier, I think that, you know, this is a contested primary and been a spirited uh, campaign so far, but a very, very um, cordial one. I think I have a unique blend of experience, but also accomplishments, uh, getting things done, whether it's, like I said, my work on violence prevention or, you know, creating things like the Madison Out of School Time Project, not personally creating, but being a part of the team that created that or the Healthy Retail Food Access Program. Um, I've just shown that I can uh, work with people to get things done. And But I also have a lot of new ideas or are open to new ideas. And so I think that combination of experience and accomplishments uh, makes me a good candidate for this for this job. I've been talking with Matt Fair, one of the four candidates running in the spring primary election for District 20 Alder. That primary election will take place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Matt, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. You bet. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week on Out of the Box, feature contributor D-Star sits down with Brian Benford, Madison Alder, and member of the UW Odyssey program. Benford talks about what he does with Odyssey and how he works to help people achieve success. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with Brian Benford. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing? Oh, I'm good. Thank you for having me this morning. No problem. So, for the people that don't know you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, I'm an alder person for the city of Madison, representing District Six, which is from lake to lake across the isthmus. In addition to that, I'm a social worker and success coach with the UW-Madison Odyssey Project. We're celebrating our 20th year. I'm so excited about that. I'm an alum of the UW-Odyssey Project, graduating in 2007, and because of that, I was able to go on and 
eventually get my master's in social work where I now work giving back to the program that's done so much for my life. And I think most importantly, I'm a proud father of five beautiful, amazing kids. And I think that's what defines me most. Let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was born in 1959, uh, went to St. Boniface with Father James Grappi, and that's where I began my understanding of the need for social justice work. In the 60s, during the civil unrest, my family moved to Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, a rural, all-white farm community, where I was the first black kid in 100 years to graduate from Fort Atkinson schools. And then shortly after 1979, I moved to Madison, Wisconsin. You came to Madison in the 70s. That's right. Can you tell us the vibe overall about the city of Madison at that time? That's a great question. Um, It's easy for me to remember 1979 and maybe because I'm... You have to realize that once again, at 20 years old, uh, I had youthful lenses. I had this romantic vision of what Madison was. One of the things that initially brought me to Madison, we had a mayor at the time that visited Cuba and uh, met with Fidel Castro. And I thought, wow, this is such a progressive community that the mayor of the city has done all of these amazing things to advocate for social justice. So as someone that was deeply interested in community and deeply interested in advocacy, I really wanted to be part of that community of Madison. So, you know, I I concede that I said it before that when I came to Madison, I didn't realize at the time that it certainly was a tale of two cities that Those with privilege, it's the most amazing place, but those that are historically marginalized, it's one of the most dismal places in the United States. So, you know, here I am. I had an Afro that uh, easily measured a good foot and a half. And uh, as I walked around and uh, saw the beautiful natural amenities, our lakes and some of the cultural offerings. And, you know, I sound like I'm 100 years old, but back then Madison had more black owned entertainment venues. There was Pearly's, there was Mr. P's. There was places that you wouldn't be the only black face in an all-white space, which is often the case here in Madison. So it was a really remarkable place when I first came here. Just, you know, coming from Fort Atkinson, seeing, this is in Chicago, but seeing buildings over three or four stories and a sense of community where you could walk places and uh, get involved with other people. Um, my age. It it was a a magical place. And I met many people that are still lifelong friends. So I'm very grateful of that, having that opportunity. Now, if you ask me what I think about Madison now, (laughs) it would be a different story. But back then, it was very romantic, if you would say. So kind of tell us a little bit about how you found out about the Odyssey program and what your role is. I originally found out about Odyssey from a dear friend of mine, uh, Big Joe Robinson. Uh, I believe Big Joe was either in the first or second year of Odyssey. And at that time, I was finishing up my first term as an alder person, Uh, for the city of Madison. Actually, I was finishing up my second term and I had mentioned before the the notion that I could go back and get a degree. It it was just 
really something that I just didn't believe could ever happen. So Big Joe pulled me aside and he said, there's this program and it's free and you should check it out. I love it. And I should mention Big Joe was part of the Madison Fatherhood Alliance at the time, which I was honored to be part of. So I kind of thought about it. Then I was at the library and I I saw a flyer for the Odyssey Project and I was kind of really interested, but didn't think that at the time I had four kids working low income jobs that, you know, I didn't want to fool myself into thinking I could go back to school. And then the former dean of students for the UW-Madison, Mary Rouse, who is just legendary, an amazing person, um, she pulled me aside. I was working at the Neighborhood House uh, Community Center on Mill Street, and uh, she pulls me aside and says, Brian, do you got your, your college degree? And I said, no, Mary. And I explained uh, why I didn't, at least my uh, viewpoint at the time, And Mary, uh, if you've ever met her, she is a force of nature. She said, you sign up right now. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to apply right now. You get an odyssey and then you'll meet with my son, Martin Rouse, who's a dean with a division of continuing studies. And you're going to get your degree. (laughs) So can you tell us what is a success coach? That's a great question. And maybe my job description might answer it differently. But what I look at it and not, you know, oftentimes I think people think I'm in a cult when I talk about the Odyssey Project. Uh, What I do is I'm able to give back to a program that was so beneficial to me and my family. So I try to provide all the wraparound services, anything that I can do to help people leave Odyssey while they're in Odyssey to secede and then go on to uh, reach their full potential through education. So sometimes that involves being a cheerleader. Sometimes that involves being maybe the strict uncle boogie. Uh, Other times it might involve just being there to listen, recognizing that uh, all the barriers and challenges that not only our students at Odyssey, but all non-traditional and historically marginalized students face, uh, it's very important that uh, we have people that can advocate for us. So that's what I try to do. I try to uh, really take the time to listen, to build rapport, a partnership, to educate when I can, but to always advocate for those that I serve. And it's been a great honor to do that. That was D-Star talking with Alder Brian Benford about the UW Odyssey program. You can hear their full conversation on the Oddity Box podcast, found wherever you get your podcasts. This week, our newest feature, The House Always Wins, carpentry and home improvement experts John and John and Allie take to the kitchen to find out what you may, why you may be seeing ice building inside your home. Hello, I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. I like learning cool stuff. Hey, um, last time we were talking about uh, ice buildup. Some folks have seen in their house, we discussed that it was caused by two things. 
Excess moisture, poor ventilation, and air leakage. Wait, that's three things, but, well, you get the idea. We talked about bath fans and connecting them to the exterior, and that's your best friend in this. But what about other areas like the kitchen? Oh, yeah. You know, every time you cook, you put a ton of humidity into the indoor air. And a range hood is the way you can manage that, that moisture humidity, and also um, manage the smells created by cooking. And finally, when you have a gas stove, you're burning a fossil fuel in your house, and a, and a range hood can help remove some of the byproducts of that burning uh, from your home. Indeed. That can be a complicated retrofit as well, right? Similar to what we talked about last time involving electricians and a fair amount of connections. Um, Absolutely. you got to make sure that, that your range hood actually exhausts to the outside to be truly effective at removing indoor humidity and all those other things. And one quick way to just double check that maybe your range hood is doing that is open up the cabinet right above your range hood. If you don't see a metal duct there, mm. all your range hood is doing is filtering and recirculating the exact same air. And it's not really filtering out a whole lot. It's not a very effective way for that to operate. It's true. That really, at that point, is just a, a, a loud uh, piece of equipment that looks good and uh, can make you feel good, but it actually doesn't really do any good. Yeah, I'm going to push back on looking good. Uh, okay, a lot true. of them don't yeah. look that great, in my opinion. It's true. So they should be ducted to the exterior in order to really work well. What if you do see the ductwork? You probably still want to check that one last thing, right? Where it's actually ducted, running to the outside. Right. You might want to look around the outside of your house and see: is there somewhere where there's a little, a little fan or grate or something that that shows that that's that's where the uh, the hood is exhausting? Exactly. In fact, turning it on and walking around and looking for that coming out. It might be on the roof, so you may not see it. That's true. But uh, I've actually, in cases, stood across the street with binoculars and found things on my roof. And that's all I looked at was things on my roof, I swear to God. (laughs) All right. So the other aspect of a hood range would be, okay, so you got to get one, right? We got to do some sizing. The basic range hood you found was what? Was it 217 CFMs? Yeah, a pretty small one costing about a little under $200, uh, exactly, 217 CFM. Uh, the fact of the matter is this is another thing where the less you spend, you're probably going to get lower performance there, lower CFM number, and also higher n- amount of noise. So what you're saying is you get what you pay for? I think uh, that's what I heard. Unfortunately, that seems to be true a lot it, of times. It's true. So one last type of ventilation that we want to touch on, which a lot of people don't have right now, but but is a, a great idea to add to your home if you can, is whole house ventilation. And, and what exactly is that? Interesting question, Allie. I'll jump on that. Whole house ventilation is uh, a, an important and excellent topic, especially if you have a newer home that is pretty well built and pretty tight, as we like to say. Uh, and that means that there's not a whole lot of air leakage. You can actually kind of smoke yourself out of your own house in some ways because you can create so many excess moisture and toxins and things. Your indoor air quality can really suffer. Are we going to have to have one of those conversations where we talk about houses having to breathe and how that's not really true and, and we'll need to move on from that conversation because I'm so done with carpenters talking about houses needing to breathe? Oh, my God. It, it is really quite simple. Houses are not sentient. It's true. They don't breathe. It's true. They shouldn't breathe. If your house is breathing, uh, run for the hills. Exactly. 
Uh, you're absolutely right. There, there is a lot of fallacy around that. And as you said, houses should not breathe. People breathe. Houses should be built tight and ventilated right. ERV and HRV are the ways you can do a whole house ventilation. What are the benefits to that, would you say, Allie? Well, the benefit to that is is you have you understand how much fresh air you're getting. So our old leaky homes, my home was built in 1911. It gets plenty of fresh air. Comes in everywhere. That's true. But I don't have any sense of like where is it coming in, how much is coming in, any of that. If I have a newer home that's built nice and tight like like they should be built, then I definitely still need to get a source of fresh air in there. And that's where one of these whole house ventilation units is super important. The thing that's really lovely about the ERVs and HRVs is that they're capturing heat from the stale air you're exhausting. It's a, a classic heat transfer thing. This is mm, all physics. It sounds like science. It is. It's physics. They're capturing the heat from that and giving you some fresh air. They're getting that bad air out of the out of your house. They're they're really critical, especially in a modern, nice, tightly built home. Indeed, costs can be they can be a little pricey, though. That's true. You know, they're a separate unit you have to install. You have to have an electrician wire them, and that's definitely the area that you want a heating contractor, right? That's what we want to do. Right. That. the The electrician is going to set up the wiring, the the circuit for it, but the heating contractor is the one that's running the ductwork. Yeah, it's like its own separate little unit and attaches to your ductwork. So definitely an area you'd want to get a price from your favorite heating and ventilating contractor. Well, that handles all the major moisture issues you might have in your house, but we still haven't talked about the ice that's making a chandelier out of your friend's uh, light fixture. What about that, Allie? Well, that's pointing to air leakage as an issue. You're going to see that as that frost right at the edges of windows and doors. Uh, You might have frost around outlets, switches, on those light fixtures, particularly light fixtures that are in the upper floor of mm-hmm. the house, the second floor, if it's a two-story house. Sometimes you don't want to have actual ice buildup there. Maybe you're actually dealing with your moisture issues pretty well, but you still have air leakage, and, and you can tell by just putting your hand on, on those areas in, in a, on a cold day, you'll feel the, the cold air. It's true. You can actually feel the air moving. Well, how do we deal with that? Well, that's sometimes a little more complicated, but some, sometimes not. Sometimes it's really simple. All you need to do is add some weather stripping to an old door. So you have an old front door that's maybe the original wood monster front door that's beautiful and you don't want to change it, right? But you feel all that cold air coming in when you put your hand up there and you've got all that ice build up from the more moist air hitting that cold air and condensing. So there it's just a matter of adding a lovely weather stripping. Things you can buy at the local hardware store. What about like up in the ceiling, those fixtures there, if you feel the air moving in there, what would you do with that? Whoo, doggy, that is a hard job. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing is that air is leaking up into that attic. And right. in order to address that, and I've done this in my house, and boy, I hated this job, but I went up in my attic, I scooted aside mm. the insulation that was up there, and I, I created a little uh, foam house Hmm. for the light fixtures that were up up in the attic. Or anytime I saw an electrical box, I put a little spray foam insulation around that. Great or, stuff. Or, yep, great stuff is, is a brand name. Or I use caulk around any of those openings. And so the, the job is 
getting the insulation out of the way and getting any of those holes that come from the ins- from the inside of the house where you're heating the air through to the attic. It is a lot of work, but it does it does do the job. That's about it for this show. We've addressed the excess moisture issues and air leakage issues and strategies to get rid of them. Next time, we'll dig into the mailbag and answer some of your questions. Got a question? Email us at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. And thanks again to to my friend Marty for asking about a problem that, uh, unfortunately, a whole bunch of people can relate to. No doubt. See you next time. See you next time. Facing rising rent prices in the Madison area, residents are looking for creative, community-based solutions. And now, a new project, hoping to make cooperative housing more accessible to Latin residents, is coming to South Madison this year. WORT reporter Faye Parks spoke with two founders of the project about what's to come. Last summer, the Madison Common Council approved over $500,000 for the Zapata Cooperative, a new affordable housing co-op centered around the Latina culture in South Madison. To learn more about Zapata, I'm joined by Frida Ballard, one of the founders. Thank you for talking with me. Hi, thank you. I'm also speaking with Paul Schechter, who was instrumental in obtaining funding from the city. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. What was your initial inspiration to create the Zapata Cooperative? So I guess the initial inspiration came from a house conflict that we had in Nottingham that kind of brought up some issues that I think lie within co-ops that tend to be focused on culture as opposed to meeting an economic need. And I think what my brother Hernan and I realized is that for, you know, a lot of, you know, immigrant folks, the cultural buy-in is maybe not the first necessity and their first want is just meeting physical needs of accessible housing. You know, thinking of that, we realized also that in Madison, like pretty much everywhere else, co-ops are not accessible to non-English speakers. And so they're not accessible to a large portion of the Latino community. Can you tell me how long this cooperative has been in the works? I think we started initial meetings in late 2021, and we decided the best approach to move forward would be to apply for funding from the City of Madison Affordable Housing Fund. And we started that application early in 2022. Frida, can you tell me about the name Zapata? Um, what are its origins and why did you choose it for your co-op? Yeah, so we wanted something that would be pretty easily pronounceable. Of course, Emiliano Zapata is one of the you know instrumental people in the Mexican Revolution that gave land back to a lot of People that worked in the field, so taking away the land from Hacenderos and gave them to the people that actually worked them. So we found it kind of fitting to uh, to this house of you know giving ownership of the house to the people that need it. Paul, could you also describe the reasoning behind choosing the house that you did? Um, what drew you to this location and how many people do you anticipate being able to house there? Well, as you mentioned, we received $551,000 from the city as a grant. And it's a special form of grant. It's called a license to hunt because the housing market is so hot or it has been. It's been really difficult for affordable housing developers with grant money to actually secure what's called site control in an amount of time that is feasible on the open market because usually there's multiple offers and it's difficult to land a property in the time frame that's needed to, to close if you're using grant money to buy it. So a license to hunt does not require you to uh, have a property picked out at the time of application. And instead, you get two years to look. 
and we spent most of 2022 looking. We put um, two offers on properties in uh, South Madison in the Bay Creek neighborhood and the Greenbush neighborhood. And there was about, I don't know, 10 or so other offers. And ours were not successful. But fortunately, in January of this year, we found a very unique property, uh, a McMansion of sorts, just south of the Beltline in, in Madison that, that kind of was a bit out of place uh, for its size and the fact that it had heated floors, jetted tubs, and a six-car garage you know, in a very working-class neighborhood. So we lucked out, so to speak, because there were not a lot of other interested people looking for that property. So, But it was perfect for us. We put it under contract about a month ago, and we will close on it in about a month. And we are going to turn it into a housing cooperative for 14 people, hopefully, uh, thereabouts. And it will be much more space efficient than it was before. Four of the six garages we are converting into livable housing space for low-income families. We're covering the roof with solar panels. We're adding a heat pump to the uh, existing boiler. And we're trying to make it as close to net zero carbon as possible, as well as a a source of, of new community and culture for the Latino community. So, Frida, I was wondering who can apply to live in Zapata. Um, what kind of community are you trying to build? So we're basically, we don't have a lot of the same requirements that other apartments have. Uh, so our housing application process just looks like getting to know people and having them attend a dinner and an interview. So we're not going to require, you know, credit checks because most of our immigrant population is not going to have a credit history in the United States. So we don't want that to be a barrier. But what we look for essentially is can they get along with people and can you abide by the rules of the house, which include democratic participation. Our our culture of the house is going to be based on essentially whoever memberships that moment. We don't have a lot of the same restrictions and we hope to also be able to compete timeline-wise with a similar application process that you would go through for an apartment. Paul, can you tell me what's next for the project? Can you walk us through a timeline? Absolutely. So we are under a pretty tight timeline because we closed March 14th. And although we have the city grants, that only covers the purchase price and we still need to do a fair amount of construction. So we are applying to another source of funding from a CDFI, Community Development Financial Institution, called Shared Capital in Minneapolis. And they only lend to other cooperatives. And their lending criteria is a bit different than normal banks. Um, They base their uh, financing decisions on the strength of the co-op itself. So uh, that means having a a strong membership, a group buy-in. And actually last night we had 18 people from the Latino community show up to Nottingham Co-op where we did an information session. And luckily there was a tremendous amount of interest and support. And I'm very hopeful that we will get this next round of financing We're looking for around $400,000. We've also engaged an architect and we will be, we're working actively with the city. We are doing weekly tech support meetings to finish all the due diligence items before the closing date. So everything is going as planned uh, and with luck, we will close on March 14th. Where can listeners find out more information? The best way to find out information would be going to zapata.coop. That's Z-A-P-A-T-A dot co-op. 
Uh, you can also find information at our website, sunnysidedevelopment.org. And uh, our contact information is on both of those sites. So we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Frida and Paul. Thanks for having us. I've been speaking with Frida Ballard and Paul Schechter about the Zapata Cooperative, a new affordable housing co-op centered around Latina culture coming to South Madison. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter this evening was Aaron Ashley, and your interviewer was Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors D-Star, John Stephanie, and Ali Barini. Dylan Brogan engineered the show, Nick Wiggy Howe produced this newscast, and Miss Shali Pippen is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your... And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, shout out to those who are listening to the local news through the WORT app. You can also subscribe to Wart's local news wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is a perpetual notion machine. Thanks for listening. Good night. WORT Madison.